Hi, my name is Fritzi Horstman. Welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Dr. James Doty, the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University, of which His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor. Dr. Doty works with a variety of scientists from a number of disciplines examining the neural basis for compassion and altruism. He is also a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Doty is an inventor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, having given support to a number of charitable organizations, supporting peace initiatives and providing health care throughout the world. Dr. James Doty, welcome to Compassion in Action. Well, it's wonderful to be with you, and uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, having me. So, Mr. Doty, um, Dr. Doty, as you as you've become a renowned neurosurgeon and um, the founder of CCARE, which stands for the Center of Compassion and Altruistic Research, um, please tell us about your journey from when you were a little child and um, how you got to the magic shop and then became a neurosurgeon. Sure. So it's actually the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And that is at Stanford. And if any of your listeners or viewers want to look that up, that's CCARE, C-C-A-R-E.Stanford.edu. But to answer your question, you know, many people look at my own journey or where I am today and make an assumption that I'm a privileged white male and um, uh, that explains everything. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth except for the fact that I am a white male. Um, but uh, uh, for many of us who do our work today, it's a manifestation of our past. And for me, uh, I grew up in poverty as a child. Uh, we were on public assistance essentially my entire life at home. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Um, my mother had had a stroke when I was a child, was uh, partially paralyzed, had a seizure disorder, uh, chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times. And uh, <clears throat> you can imagine, of course, that is not the uh, appropriate environment uh, to succeed in life. Uh, we talk about uh, what is now termed adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And um, certainly I was a nine or a 10, uh, which, you know, is the highest level of trauma. You know, when you have poverty, mental illness, drug and alcohol abuse, violence, et cetera, these all increase your scores. And the reality is as those scores increase, the likelihood for you to achieve success and uh, what our society calls success, uh, having a job, having relationships, et cetera, uh, decreases uh, as the score goes up. And uh, so the question is, how was I different? And um, while my parents, I had no doubt, loved me, uh, they of course were struggling with their own issues. That being said, uh, I felt ignored and I was also angry uh, at my parents, at my situation. Uh, I had a sense of despair and hopelessness about my future. And um, 
when you feel hopeless, unfortunately, the way that translates <clears throat> is oftentimes you're self-destructive because you don't care about what happens to you uh, because you feel uh, that no one cares. And as a result, um, you know, you start doing a variety of behaviors that are not positive. Uh, whether it be drugs, alcohol, violence, yourself, becoming a juvenile delinquent. So by the age of 12, I was becoming a juvenile delinquent and uh, something extraordinary happened. And what happened is that I walked into a magic shop, <laughs> which of course seems incredibly strange, but what, what happened there is that it created a situation that allowed for change. And when I would get angry or upset, I would get on my bicycle and try to uh, pedal as fast as I could to get away uh, from the situation. Obviously, you never get away from that situation, but it felt like I could. And on one of those trips, I uh, came across a strip mall and in the strip mall was a, um, a magic shop. And I had had an interest in magic. And as a result, um, I went into this magic shop uh, uh, looking actually for a trick. And uh, the woman at the counter, uh, who was in her 50s, um, turns out she knew nothing about magic in the magic shop because she was the owner's daughter, I mean, uh, mother. And uh, her son, uh, the magician, was actually out running an errand and he'd left her in charge to just sit there. And in fact, when I walked in, she was reading a book and she had these spectacles that were on her nose and a chain around. And, uh, <clears throat> but when she looked up, uh, she greeted me with uh, a radiant smile. And it was one <clears throat> that I immediately sensed was non-judgmental and she looked at me <clears throat> as uh, an equal, not as a 12-year-old, uh, but that my opinion, what I said to her was actually important and something for her to listen to. And the nature of that type of interaction leads to something we now term uh, psychological safety. You know, in, in an environment like my own, uh, it's like uh, a war zone in the sense that you never know what's going to happen to you. You know, your father doesn't come home. Is he at a bar? Did something happen? Uh, you know, your mother, you come in, she's not responsive. Did she overdose on pills? And so every day, <clears throat> uh, there's no consistency. And in fact, you can be thrown into this horrible situation as a child of trying to manage the behavior of adults. And of course, no child uh, should ever uh, be put into that position. And um, so <clears throat> this woman and I began a conversation and <clears throat> um, she actually started querying me and she informed me she knew nothing about magic, but she 
really was interested in me. And uh, normally I would never answer people's personal questions about me because, you know, frankly, if you grow up in poverty, uh, you're ashamed. You're ashamed how you're dressed. You're ashamed of the situation. You're ashamed of all the things <clears throat> that you can't do. And, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, for a child to carry that burden, it's particularly difficult because it's not his or her fault they're in that situation. It's just the nature of the situation, but you still as a child blame yourself. So after we talked for 20 or 30 minutes, she said to me, she said, you know, I really like you and I'm gonna be here for another six weeks. If you show up every day, I'll teach you something that I think could really help you. And, um, and remember this was before the terms mindfulness or meditation or neuroplasticity were even uh, discussed or in the vocabulary. So I did show up and it wasn't because I had any insight or self-awareness. The reason I showed up uh, was one, she, during our conversation, she had a, box, uh, a bag of cookies that she would give me. Two, frankly, I had nothing else to do. And this was a person who was kind, nice, open, gentle, which of course is appealing and that's what all of us want. We want to interact with people who care about us. And I sense this from her. So I did show up and over the course of this week or the six weeks, she taught me many things. <clears throat> the first was uh, that coming from my background and this um, constant chaos and never knowing what's going to happen resulted in me constantly being tense and not be able to focus because, you know, if you never know what's going to happen, you basically are always in threat mode. And when you're in threat mode, you uh, don't have access to be as thoughtful or discerning about decision-making. What you're interested in is survival. You're not necessarily interested in figuring out the best way or the most thoughtful way to solve a problem. Because when you're in threat mode, this part of your brain called your executive control function, which gives you access to memories, experiences, uh, and makes you much more thoughtful and discerning isn't available to you. Um, so the first thing she taught me was to do something called a body survey, uh, which uh, I call it um, relaxing the body in the book. Um, uh, and um, it's essentially just with intention, sitting calmly and going through your muscle groups and relaxing while you're doing a breathing exercise. And that does several things. The nature of the breathing exercises actually shifts you from your threat mode into what we call your rest and digest system. So it shifts you from your sympathetic nervous system into your parasympathetic nervous system. When you're in your parasympathetic nervous system, your physiology actually works its best. Your blood pressure comes down, your pulse comes down, the expression of um, inflammatory proteins decrease, which is associated with uh, a lot of uh, disease states. Uh, your cortisol levels come down, which is a threat hormone. Uh, your immune system is actually boosted. And 
So when you're in that state, when you've relaxed everything, everything starts shifting and you're much more open uh, and more thoughtful. And so from that point, uh, what she explained to me was that the commentary or view that I had of myself, which is this voice in your head, which I thought was truth or real, uh, is just made up. It's not real or factual in any way. The problem is for many people, the way we respond to threat is different than the way we respond to not being threatened. And what I mean by that is, as an example, if you're on the savanna in Africa and you see a blade of grass move, your assumption is that there may be an animal such as a lion there and you immediately get prepared to react to it and that could be running away or whatever. Uh, and we know those types of threats stick with you. That's how we're wired because that is associated with saving your life uh, versus when everything is perfect, uh, you have plenty of food, you know, there's no danger around, you're completely relaxed and everything. You don't need that information in those situations. You need it if there's threat. Well, the side effect of that is that when a negative comment is made about you or you perceive a negative comment, when negative events happen, you have a tendency to then turn those into statements like, well, this happened because I didn't do this. This happened because I'm not smart enough. This happened because uh, I'm not good enough. Uh, this happened because I'm really an imposter and I don't belong here. And all of those negative things have a tendency to create a prison for yourself. And every one of them, it's like putting a brick down and building this wall. And as time goes on, the wall starts coming in on you they're not any windows, it's getting dark, and you're very, very self-focused. And the problem with this, of course, is that so many of us have just immense power to change the world, in fact, but we give it away when we listen to these voices. <clears throat> so she made me recognize this reality, and she uh, used the term, in fact, it was changing the station of the radio. You know, you're listening to one that is filled with this negative commentary. You need to switch channels to one which is positive and one of self-affirmation and acceptance. And uh, that's what happened over a period of time. So I recognized that reality and I changed the dialogue to one of saying, I deserve love, uh, I'm worthy. Uh, it's not my fault. Um, I can do anything. Because, you know, once you use the terms, I can't, it's not possible, by definition, that is reality. So I learned to get rid of that terminology. And, uh, and from that, she made me understand uh, this concept that's fairly well known now of self-compassion, to accept yourself, to accept the good, the bad parts, and also accept that the nature of experience isn't even necessarily related to anything about you. And what I mean by that is that 
you know, if a negative event occurs in your life, uh, it can just occur. It's not because you had anything to do with it. And what I mean by that is that when we go through life experiences, there's a tendency to create a narrative as to why they occur. And in that narrative, and we'll call this picture, if you will, a black and white picture, like the picture behind me of the Dalai Lama. Uh, <laughs> the experience is simply black and white. But what happens is every time we have an event occur, we paint it with the paint of emotion. That is what goes into our memory, not the black and white picture, which is just an event. And the reason I tell you that is that oftentimes when you grow up in these challenging situations, you create all these pictures and they're pictures that have in them, I'm hurt, I'm in pain. This is why this happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not real. They're simply events that occurred to you uh, or that occurred uh, and they have no other meaning than that versus saying, well, the reason that happened is he doesn't like me and he was against me or uh, my parents don't love me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what that allowed me to do these experiences then was to shift my perspective to understand not only that I was worthy of love and being cared for and being accepting of love, but it made me change my perspective because when you're internally focused because of your own deficiencies and your lack of self-worth and you're uh, being ashamed, it stops you from seeing out the rest of the world. And so once I had that perspective, then I could look out and see a different world. And the different world was that one, uh, essentially everyone's suffering in some way or another. And we have this perception that if you're rich or you're famous or you live in a big house, you drive a nice car that you don't suffer. And that's a complete fallacy. Uh, some of the most suffering people in the world I know are very wealthy people. But the other side of it is that in general interaction with people, we judge how they're interacting with us based on a narrative of our own pain and suffering and how it plays into that. And oftentimes when people interact with us in a negative way, especially, it has nothing to do with us. It could have had to do with an argument they had with their spouse before they came to work. It could have been due to being cut off in the freeway. It could be due to having a bad meal, all sorts of things. And, uh, but we have a tendency to be reactive and look at it from our perspective at that moment without pausing and taking the time to think this through. Because again, emotion regulation is a very, very important aspect of being centered, if you will. Uh, as an example, you know, if somebody attacks you, your natural tendency is to attack them back immediately. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but this can be a, uh, big mistake. Uh, you know, I tell a story of a colleague I worked with and uh, we were working on a project. He was much younger than I, and he was uh, changing jobs and he had two children, wife, 
And he decided as an example, uh, when he left the job that he wasn't going to take the COBRA insurance. You know, you have to have COBRA insurance to maintain healthcare. He wasn't gonna take it because his family was healthy. It was only a few months and why spend all that money, right? Uh, so he came to see me one day uh, and we began this conversation and he became quite surly and aggressive. And my tendency was to go, you know, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at him and instead of getting into that mode of getting in an argument and confront him, I said, you know, your behavior is just so unusual. What's wrong? He looked up and he started crying. The reason he was crying was uh, his wife had found a lump on her breast, went to the doctor, got a biopsy ultimately, and it was malignant. And here he is, no job, no health insurance, two children. And he was terrified. And he didn't have us, he hadn't reached out or had a support structure to help him. And, you know, when this uh, came out, uh, um, we went back and were able, fortunately, to get his COBRA insurance. And ultimately, she was treated with surgery. It hadn't metastasized everywhere, and she was fine. But my point is we make assumptions about people's behavior based on our own pain and suffering oftentimes, not on reality. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, a rule that I learned, uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Viktor Frankl. Um, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a psychologist or psychiatrist who was um, placed in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And um, he made a statement, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but he said, before, uh, following stimulus is response. And within the pause between stimulus and response lies your freedom. And what he meant by that is that at some point, you will learn to regulate your emotions so that you're not blinded by this immediate sense of your own suffering and issues about you, but you're able to look out and see the reality that other people are suffering. And when you take that pause or that period of time, you start seeing things in a much, much clearer fashion. And so that was uh, an incredible gift to learn that. And uh, um, so, you know, that was basically, uh, you know, the situation there. So from relaxing the body or um, uh, to opening the heart, um, to manifesting compassion and, but ultimately, excuse me, somebody is texting me. Uh, sorry, uh, let me turn off my phone here. Um, um, the next question is, you know, how do you manifest your intention. Yes. 
And I think, you know, especially with ch children from my type of a background, you know, you're lost. You don't have mentors, you don't have access, you don't have money. You're afraid of being judged. And as a result, oftentimes very intelligent people hold back because they don't know how to respond. They haven't been taught how to respond. And they're afraid uh, that people are going to judge them. And uh, so what I tell people is that what I learned in this magic shop changed how I looked at the world because before I looked at it with fearful eyes that something bad was going to happen versus changing my perspective of saying, um, <clears throat> I'm a frail, fragile human being and everyone in some way is frail and fragile. And when I changed and got rid of the anger, the hostility, the negative emotional states, which limit us so often, uh, and looked at people with this different set of eyes, when I changed how I looked at the world, the world changed how it looked at me. Amazing. So this, because people do want to help you, uh, but if they're afraid of you, if you scare them, if you act negatively towards them, a lot of people don't have it within themselves oftentimes to understand why that could be. Obviously a well-educated person or an insightful person may have that perspective, but a lot don't. So when I changed how I looked at the world, things started opening up for me. And I went from this position of believing that I had no future to believing that I could become a physician, believing that really I could do anything. Because as I said at the start of our discussions, we have this incredible gift, this incredible power within each of us to do amazing things. We just don't believe it enough. And when you remove those barriers, when you remove the negative uh, emotions, the self-doubt, <clears throat> and you understand that within you is this incredible ability to be what you want, um, then everything starts uh, changing. And that's uh, what happened to me. You know, interestingly enough, and I'll tell you a couple stories, is we're talking about manifesting intention. So the last thing she taught me was how to do that. And what she's, again, recognized at that point, and now of course we have sports psychologists who talk about visualization, et cetera, et cetera. These are very powerful tools, but she took it further. It wasn't a matter of just thinking about it. It was a matter of writing it down. It was a matter of reading it, repeating it. It was a matter of acting the part, if you will. It was a matter of seeing yourself in that position. Because what happens is that many of us don't appreciate it, but once you set this intention and put it into your subconscious, then your subconscious takes over. I'll give you an example. When I see a patient in my clinic and I diagnose them with a condition, almost invariably they'll say, I've never heard of that. 
wow, this is the first time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They come back and see me a few months later and they go, this is amazing. I've run into five people of the exact same thing. <laughs> well, why is that? Because you see, it is in their subconscious and they're attuned to hearing this. And so when you're able to put your intention into your subconscious, then this allows you to be attuned to different events that are surrounding you and hone in on it. The reality is we get about, and I'm, I may be wrong here, but it's close to this, about 6 million bits of information a second. That's all that comes from all of our sensory organs. Yet we can process only 50 to 100. What that means is we ignore an incredible vast amount of information that's going on around us. So if your subconscious is attuned to that, then things happen which you didn't expect. As an example, I'm sure you've been at a cocktail party or an event and everything is fine. A lot of chatter. You can't even talk yourself. Somebody mentions your name across the room and you immediately turn to it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And that's because you're attuned, again, this is related to threat, but you're attuned to something happening. But if you say, you know, I want to become a doctor, here's what I have to do to get in, you know, set the path for that, things start aligning, if your intention is correct. And so I mentioned three examples. Uh, um, the first one is when I, um, uh, applied to college. You know, I was in a science class and I knew I wanted to go to college. I had had an experience with a doctor when I was a fourth grader and I was motivated to do that, but I was completely clueless about the process. I knew nothing. And I was sitting at a chair or at the desk and there was a girl next to me and I looked over and she was filling out an application. And I looked at this and I realized it was a college application. And I said to her, I said, oh, uh, wow, you're applying to college. And she said, yeah, you know, uh, the deadlines are coming up. I'm trying to get this done. And I said, oh, wow. And I said, well, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going to UC Irvine. And I didn't even know what UC Irvine was. And uh, she looked at me and she said, uh, uh, where are you going? And I said, UC Irvine. <laughs> And I said, but I haven't received my packet yet. And uh, uh, she said, well, I have an extra application. She gave it to me and I filled it out and I was accepted to UC Irvine. Uh, and that's really how it happened. It, it, it wasn't because I had uh, incredible insight or anything, it, but my subconscious had set the stage for these events to occur. When I applied to medical school, uh, at my at Irvine, we had a pre-med committee that had to write you a letter of recommendation prior to your application. And I went to the office to get an appointment and the secretary said to me, I'm not going to give you an appointment. And I looked at her and I said, well, why not? And she said, because it's a waste of everyone's So, you know, as a human being, to be told that you're a waste of everyone's time is crushing. 
and <clears throat> and demoralizing and just so so inappropriate but fortunately I had the fortitude to look at this woman I said well you know I appreciate that's what you think but uh, um, I'm not leaving here until you give me an appointment and she did and uh, I walked into a room at the time of this appointment. There are three people in the room, uh, the fellow in the center. And imagine you have this long or table. Three people are at the end. You're at the other end. And they're all sitting there like this. You know, their arms are crossed because you're wasting their time. Mm -hmm. And this guy in the center takes my application. He throws it on the table. And he says, say what you have to say so we can get this over with. So I looked at this fellow, I said, who gave you the right to destroy people's dreams? And I said, there's not one shred of evidence that having a, anything above an average uh, intelligence has any correlation with how good of a doctor you are. And I said, I refuse to allow you to uh, objectify me as a grade or a piece of paper. And I ended up speaking for 30, 45 minutes doing, you know, the talking. And at the end of it, they were all crying. And the point of this is that once you show someone that you're a human being and you're not this number, they cannot turn away from you. So uh, as I was walking out, the secretary who had been listening in on this, she had, um, and this was before we had um, Xerox machines, she had a, um, uh, what's it called, a mimeograph uh, trifold green piece of paper she handed me. And it was um, an application for a summer enrichment program at Tulane University. Uh, and she said, you know, uh, I want to give this to you. Uh, I think it might help you. Um, it's for socioeconomically disadvantaged and minority students. And I said, well, I appreciate that. She said, but, you know, the deadline has passed for this. But she said, I don't think it'll affect you getting it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in fact, I did apply. I went to this program. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, I applied to uh, Tulane. And it's the only place I got an interview. And uh, they accepted me. Now, the interesting thing is that I did not even have enough credits to graduate. The average grade point average at Tulane at that time, if I recall, is about 3.79. Uh, which is, I think, an A minus or something. My grade point average was 2.53. So they accepted me uh, with that grade point average without a medical or without an undergraduate degree. And there you have it. Now, wow. if you were to fast forward, uh, you know, to uh, more recently, uh, Obviously, I didn't have any problems with medical school or residency or anything. Um, if you fast forward, after Hurricane Katrina, 
and Tulane is in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans was flooded. The medical school shut down for two years. The dean resigned uh, when they were cut, and the library was severely damaged. When they decided to come back, they were looking for a new dean, and he uh, wanted an endowed chair, which, of course, as you probably know, this is a high, very high academic honor, but you know they cost usually uh, a few million bucks. Uh, so when this happened to Tulane, um, by this time I had become a neurosurgeon and a successful entrepreneur. Uh, I ended up uh, making a donation to Tulane, which endowed the Dean's chair. And he's um, the Doty professor. Um, I rebuilt the library and uh, set up some other scholarships uh, and uh, chairs. And um, it shows you how no one can predict anyone's success. And that if you believe in yourself and uh, what you're trying to accomplish, you can do anything. And in fact, uh, I ended up also being the um, um, speaker at what we call the white coat ceremony. And I don't know if you know what that is, but when you, prior to starting medical school, there's a ceremony where you get a white coat, you take the oath of Hippocrates, and then they typically have a inspirational speaker uh, come. And I was that person one year. And of course you can imagine what an incredible honor uh, that was to be asked to speak. Wow. <laughs> wow. I've the odds were against you at every point and you just, you just defied them and ex exceeded them. Yes. So, uh, and this is, uh, again, this is available to everyone. Now it's not to say everyone's going to become a doctor or a neurosurgeon, but everyone can do things in their lives that they don't think are possible for them. Yeah. Because of other people's judgments, uh, about them. And that's what we do is we let other people's judgments affect how we believe in ourselves or how we see ourselves. And so, yeah, I uh, uh, ended up doing that. I also was a successful entrepreneur. Um, I ended up giving $30 million to charity uh, and set up health clinics uh, all over the world. And um, and then I founded this uh, center at Stanford uh, with the Dalai Lama, and we published a fair amount of uh, work in that space. And fundamentally, uh, at the end of the day, when you can be kind to yourself, when you can be compassionate to yourself, it changes your own physiology, but it also impacts everyone around you. And it gives you the tools, the resilience, to not be afraid about the consequences. And what I mean by that is, you know, even in this interview, uh, you know, you can see that I get emotional. And, uh, and the thing about society is that we judge people uh, oftentimes by uh, looking at them as if they're weak or something, if they show emotions. 
And uh, the reality is the people who can show emotions are usually the strongest people in the room because they're not afraid. You know, so many people's behavior is temporized by, uh, uh, they think they're gonna be judged by somebody. And the reason that's, that's the case is in modern society, unlike let's say a few hundred years ago when you grew up in a village, uh, you know, in that village, everyone knew you, they knew your parents, they knew you from the time you were born and they accepted you and they gave you love. And even if your parents weren't available, the community, the village itself would watch out for you. And they saw you at your worst, your best, and lo and behold, they still loved you. And in modern society, we don't have that. We don't have access to our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our grandparents. And so we're put into these environments that uh, are stressful. And most people think that if they show their vulnerability or you know, tell the truth about their situation that they're going to be judged and not accepted. You know, this is why people, you know, they work in a cubicle their whole lives next to someone else. And people ask me every day, how are you doing? Go, oh, everything's fine. But in fact, you know, many of these people have uh, loved ones who are ill, have had tragedies, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't feel open enough to share that. And, and as a result, you keep saying these platitudes that allow you to survive and not be hurt deeply, but they also stop you from true connection with others. And what I tell people is, you know, to be who you are, not be afraid of it. Uh, you know, I've made multiple mistakes and, uh, uh, and I'm a human being. And the nature of making mistakes of being a human being is you're not perfect nor are you ever going to be perfect. All you can do is to live in the moment and do the best you can do with the tools that you have. And if people don't like that, well, that's not your problem, that's their problem. You know, I was giving a lecture one time and a, um, my, I, I was talking about something uh, uh, that I felt was important and a personal experience and my voice cracked, I think I shed a tear. And afterwards, a woman comes up to me and she says, Oh my God, I felt so sorry for you up on the stage. I noticed that your voice cracked and uh, you were shedding tears and oh, it must've been so painful, everyone looking at you. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and also a hypnotist. And if you come to me for three sessions, I'll get rid of that for you. And uh, uh, I looked at her and thanked her and I said, I I'm just fine uh, as I am. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and so I think being authentic, carrying yourself as who you are, not being afraid of that is really uh, very, very important. And in fact, you know, when you look at companies or businesses, Google did an experiment uh, a number of years ago because they wanted to understand what makes a successful team and team leader. And uh, in the early days of Google, which was, I would suggest you was founded by people with some degree of Asperger's, uh, <laughs> you know, their view of the world was that only if you're in the top 5% uh, of the class or class of only 15 universities or so, are you worthy to work at Google? Because of course the best ideas would come from those people. And what they found was is they acquired more companies and many people didn't fulfill those criteria and continue to work at Google. They uh, started studying this and they found after spending, I think, uh, many millions of dollars, uh, 
a couple of things. The first thing was that your grade point average had zero to do with you being a successful leader or what college you went to, zero, nothing. Domain experience had little to do with your success as a leader. What were the most important things? Authenticity, uh, showing who you really are uh, to people, being non-judgmental, allowing people to fail. And it's these types of critical attributes that allow someone to live a successful life. And I don't necessarily mean uh, money-wise, uh, I'm talking about being a good human being. You know, young people especially get caught up in this view that, um, you know, I'm nothing unless I live in a big house or drive a, 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 an expensive sports car or whatever. And as I said earlier, many of those people are some of the most unhappy people in the world. I am myself, you know, I've had nine Porsches, three Ferraris, Maseratis, Mercedes, and I lived in a massive house overlooking the ocean. And uh, in the middle of all of that, I was more unhappy than I had ever been. And the reality was, I kept thinking if I get more and more stuff, I can take this sense of shame and uh, unworthiness and it would be uh, fixed by these things. And it did nothing to do that. In fact, it actually made it worse. And uh, ultimately, the only way you can fix these things uh, is within yourself because that's where it manifests itself. So um, I spent a great deal of time working on that aspect. And while all of these living in a big house and having a great car and all of that is wonderful, the most important thing is to have peace of mind and to accept yourself with all your deficiencies, but also with all your unique aspects, because that makes a human life, that makes life worth meaning. And to fall back on the reality of how being compassionate, not only to yourself, but to others, actually changes everything. I said three words in the whole interview. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible. Um, and this is for the men and women living in prison. And the words and the wisdom that you imparted I think will really um, will really expand their horizons. Is there is there something they can do to increase their intention? Um, any advice on getting that intention so that they can start moving forward in their lives? Well, uh, as I said, you know, the thing that helped me is you know, I made a list of ten things I wanted to accomplish. Now you have to remember these are, I would suggest because not that I believe in karma, but maybe I do. They can't be against someone. They have to be helpful, right? But I made a list of 10 things that I wanted to accomplish. And every day I would write each of them down. I would read the list. I would uh, go through it in my head. I would visualize myself being in that position. And that is how you do it. And if you truly live with that, you'll start seeing change uh, pretty immediately. The other aspect, which I didn't bring up, was uh, 
at the end of uh, that lecture I gave at my medical school, I wanted to impart with these students something that in looking at you know, the arc of my own career that would be helpful to them. And it came down to 10 letters of the alphabet, uh, which are C through L. And this is a mantra that I basically say every morning. I wake up and I sit and I breathe and relax. I think of joy and awe of being in this world. And then with intention, I start at C and end in L. And C is compassion for self and others. D is recognizing the dignity of every person. E is practicing equanimity. F is practicing forgiveness. G is having gratitude. H is humility. I is having uh, integrity and values that you live by. J is justice or sense of fairness towards others. K is just kindness, simply being good for no other reason, all contained by love. And that is the mantra that I live by every day. Dr. James Doty, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And hopefully you'll come back and maybe we can explore the alphabet in a little more depth. Sure. And actually, one of the things I'm going to be doing at the beginning of the year is a podcast. So if any of your listeners are interested, hopefully it'll probably be at jamesrdotymd.com. Uh, I'm working on all that now, but uh, uh, that should be available as well. We'll put a link in the, in the notes when it comes out. Thank you again, Dr. Doty. You take care. Okay.